Good morning. <clears throat> Let's uh, go to our Creator with a word of prayer before we start. Almighty God, we thank you so much for the testimony of those who have gone before us, that they lived, that they suffered, and they loved, and they died in the name of Christ, that we can look to them as an example, that we can look to them as our brethren, that we will one day meet them in your presence as we all bow down and worship you together, that this story is, is not over, that these are not strangers, that these are people that that we will know when we know you. So I thank you for this opportunity to, to study them and to learn from them. I pray that we will imbibe deeply from their writings, from their testimony, that it will ultimately draw us closer to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay. So today we are going to talk about Augustine. Who's heard of Augustine before? It's a name that uh, we should all be familiar with because it, 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 he is truly the father of uh, what we call Western Christianity. So it's uh, his shadow looms large. One historian said that in the church in the West, of which we are a part of, no one's shadow looms larger than Augustine's except for Paul himself. So his influence on the church is profound. Uh, before we get started, though, I just want to note, if you look on the first page of the notes, and the notes are going around, so if you don't have any, raise your hand. Um, since the beginning of the class, I have had this little uh, timeline on the front page of the notes. And this is the last class that it's going to show up because we are transitioning from the ancient church or the church during the Roman Empire to the church in the Middle Ages. And, and those are going to look very, very differently. So it's an important uh, punctuation in time. Next week, we'll spend the beginning of the class in the Roman Empire, but by the time we get to the end of class, we will be well into not just the Middle Ages, but what we call the Dark Ages. So it's, uh, we just bid this little timeline farewell because we are transitioning. The, the nature of the church, the things that the church is contending with, the issues that they are confronted with, the political landscape that the church is operating in is about to change very, very dramatically. And it's fitting that we're going to talk about Augustine today because when he dies, he is witnessing that transition firsthand. So uh, in a way, with him dies the ancient church and begins the medieval church, in a way. So, so let's talk about Augustine. Why is Augustine important? He is important for a host of reasons. As I said, he is often referred to as the father of Latin or Western Christianity. So as we will discuss, not next week, but the week after, 
the church is ultimately going to split. And we've seen the roots of that split already, where you have a Latin western half of the Roman Empire and a Greek eastern half of the Roman Empire. And it's not just a linguistic difference, but it's a cultural difference that is going to infuse the church. And ultimately, the questions that the church is even asking are going to be different. Where in the East, Greek philosophy has permeated the culture at large so that Christians are just naturally predisposed to ask very esoteric questions about the nature of God. In the West, that philosophical inquiry never really permeated beyond the highest classes of society. And so the questions that the church is going to be asking in the West are more pragmatic. How do I live? Not how do, you know, the the persons of the Trinity interconnect each other in mystical union. There's, There's a fundamental difference. Now, both are important, but those differences are going to characterize the churches going forward. And ultimately, that split is going to come in the year 1054. And we'll, we'll talk about that, but we're not there yet. But that split was coming long before 1054. And Augustine, in a lot of ways, is going to characterize that split. At least characterize the western half of it. And our church here at First Baptist at Mount Shasta, we are part of the Western church. We are part of Western Christianity. The Eastern church is encompassed largely in in the Orthodox church. And like I say, you know, uh, I mean, some people have said that the Protestant church and the Catholic church have different answers to the same questions, but the Greek church is asking different questions altogether. So we are a product of the West, even though we are not a part of the Catholic Church, we're still a part of the Western tradition. And that's an important thing to remember. And so, as a product of the Western tradition, we look to Augustine as one of our spiritual forefathers, just as the Catholics do. But in a way, we have an even stronger claim to him because it's his teachings that the reformers are going to look back to and say to the Catholic Church, you guys have strayed from this and we need to get back to Augustine. So he's really setting the benchmark in terms of what Western Christianity consists of and what in the Middle Ages the church at large is going to stray away from. Does that make sense? So he's he is a singularly important figure. Uh, when we initially divided up you know, all the classes and what we were going to discuss, ostensibly we were supposed to discuss John Chrysostom and Augustine on the same day. And when I started making my notes, I just said, no way. You know, Augustine needs his own hour, at least. I mean, it really, an hour doesn't even do it justice. So let's dive in, and when we dive in, let's dive into his life, not just his teachings, because we know more about Augustine's life than 
any other early church leader. And we know that for two reasons. One, because he wrote more and more of his writings, that is to say pretty much all of his writings, survive down to the present day. I, I have been desiring... Uh, Well, anyway, we don't need to talk about that. Let's just say he wrote a lot. Um, But one of the things that he wrote is a book some of you may have even read. It's called Confessions. And in it, he, and we'll talk about it a little more towards the end of class, but in Confessions, he documents his journey to faith in his own words, from his childhood to after he accepts Christ. And it is not just important to the church in terms of understanding one of its great leaders and understanding a biblical anthropology, and we'll get into that, but just in terms of Western literature, even by secular literary critics, the book Confessions is considered the very first autobiography in the world. So if you've read an autobiography about anyone else, that literary genre goes all the way back to Augustine. He started it. So it's a, in the ancient world, in the Roman times, it's literarily it's unique amongst all other writings. So we have a lot of information about his life in a way that we don't anyone else. So, but his life is also very inspiring, but also very instructive. So let's dig into that. So Augustine is born in the year 354. So this is 20, excuse me, 23 years after the death of Constantine. What did Constantine do that was important? He was the first emperor that embraced Christianity. So the empire has now began a relationship with the church that is going to have, as we said, positives and negatives. And so Constant, or Augustine is going to be born into that, and reflecting him being born into that, he is born into a mixed household with a pagan father and a Christian mother. And her name is Monica. <clears throat> and Monica is, I mean, in, in, in Catholic uh, saint... Uh, veneration is held in very, very high esteem. Uh, she is considered kind of a, you know, after Mary in a lot of ways, like the prototype of a godly woman, and not just a, a godly woman, but a godly mother. Um, she is going to be absolutely devoted to her son, not so much like in a protective way, like she's a helicopter parent, you know, as we deal, talk about now, but really in his spiritual life. And, and she lived a life of unceasing prayer on behalf of her son. And as we'll see in a minute, he needs it. Uh, but she famously went to bed each night, as Augustine himself testifies, she goes to bed each night shedding tears for her son because of his sinful ways. And so she is... She is a, a, a picture of motherly devotion to the spiritual life of her offspring. Um, and that will bear fruit over time, as we'll, we'll get to. So, uh, Augustine was born in North Africa. Now, we've discussed North Africa before in this class. 
at the time, uh, it, it, it was not what we think of it as today. It was the breadbasket of the Western Roman Empire, and it was very, very Roman. Uh, and actually, the North Africa around Carthage, in kind of the area centered on the modern country of Tunisia, but into Libya and into what's now Algeria, that whole area, was the heart of Western Christianity. So the, the church down there was extremely strong. It had been for a couple of centuries by this point. And so Constantine, man, I keep saying, if I say Constantine at this point, I mean Augustine, okay? I'm sorry. I, can't, I don't know why I keep doing this this morning. Um, so please forgive me if I, if I mix that up. Because I'm done talking about Constantine. If I say it, you know who I mean. Um, so Augustine uh, is going to be born into this environment, but it's not a 100% Christian environment. It's still uh, very pagan as well. And uh, he is, but his, his family is upper class. And at the age of 11, he's going to begin his academic studies, where he's going to be sent off to a special school to study rhetoric, which we've talked about before, where we talked about Ambrose, and he's going to come into the story here in a little bit, where Ambrose, the bishop of Milan, he's the one that stood in the door uh, and barred the door uh, so that Emperor Theodosius couldn't come in and, and take communion. Uh, Ambrose was a student of rhetoric. And many others before him, Tertullian was a student of rhetoric. John Chrysostom had studied rhetoric. You know, this was, this was like the elite education of the Roman Empire. You were learning philosophy. You were learning how to persuade people through words, how to think critically and then articulate that verbally and literarily. So he's beginning the road of uh, a high-born person with a, a premier education. But <clears throat> it's during this time, and he's away from his mother, remember he leaves when home to go study when he's 11, that even though he's in this upper class and in this elite school, he's going to start stealing food. And he's going to wander around the city looking for places and ways to steal food. And later in his life, and I mean, and again, you can read this in Confessions because this is where he talks about it. He says that he wasn't hungry. He had plenty of food, but he found that he enjoyed stealing for the sake of the error like he was reveling in his sin. So he, he didn't know it then as a child that you know, he was a sinner. He didn't have the theological terms in which to understand it, but the thrill of the violation was the, the drug that drove him to steal. <clears throat> so that's going to set him on a bad road. When he's 17, his father is going to die, and, and he'd grown up in a household with tension where his mother had been pointing him to Christ fervently, but his father had been turning him away from Christ. Not quite as fervently, but still with a lot of influence on him. But when he's 17, his father is going to die, and he's going to be sent to Carthage to go to an even better school to continue his education. And while he's there, he's going to stray even further from the life that his mother continued to pray that he would follow. 
So at 19, he's going to take a concubine and he's going to father a child and that child will be with him for many years. And actually when Augustine finally uh, relents in his struggle against God and accepts Christ, his son will also accept Christ at that time and then die shortly thereafter. We'll get to that. Um, but this is the time when he is going to father this child. And what he's really interested in is not his studies. He said in terms of his studies, he was lazy. What he was really interested in was pursuing his lusts. And so he is going to embrace that lifestyle wholeheartedly, and he is going to pursue them with gusto. And that's in, in dealing with, uh, with, with sexual sin is going to be something that is going to dominate his uh, pilgrimage to the Lord, as we will see. So, at the same time, while he's in Carthage, he's also going to become a member of a religion called Manichaeism. And Manichaeism is this weird mix of Gnosticism, which we've talked about, as well as a Persian religion called Zoroastrianism. Uh, and it's, we'll get into that Manichaeism in a little bit. I want to, I'll explain it more when, we just, when he tackles it head on. But suffice to say that he is spiritually wandering. And he's going to stay with Manichaeism for nine years or so. Ultimately, he is going to move to Rome to start a new school of his own. And even though Rome was no longer the functional capital of the, of the empire, it was still the the largest and wealthiest city in, in the Western Empire, and still the, the intellectual epicenter of the West. And, and so he is going to go there, and he's going to start his school. But he's going to come away a little underwhelmed from that experience. But his mother is going to follow him to Rome, and she's going to encourage him to go talk to this bishop up in Milan who was also a red herician before he became a leader of the church. And she says, don't listen to the content of what he's saying. Just go listen to how he's saying it. Because Augustine, as a teacher of rhetoric, and Ambrose as a master of rhetoric, Augustine has a professional interest in what Ambrose is saying, or how he's saying it. And so, Augustine and his family, because he still has his concubine and his son and his mother, are going to make their way up to Milan, and they are going to settle there. And while he's there, his mother had a friend who was a Christian man named Simplicius. This is not in your notes. But Simplicius is a is also working with Monica to, to save Augustine. And so Simplicius is going to introduce Augustine, not introduce him, but in, he, Augustine was already familiar with it, but to encourage him to read uh, Neoplatonists. We're taking Platonic, Plato's philosophy and adding religious uh, aspects to it. And Plato liked to teach a lot about the Logos, which we 
talked about in church, in which who else talks about the Logos? John. And Simplicius, what he was doing was trying to drive a wedge, using the, this, this philosophy to drive a wedge between Augustine and the Manichaeans, and that wedge would push him closer to John, in effect. Now, I'm not advising everyone to take that tactic in trying to bring our non-Christian friends to the Lord, but that was the gambit that Simplicius ran. And ultimately, it's going to work, or at least have a part in working. So while they're in Milan, uh, Constant, or there you go again, Augustine is going to start going to hear the sermons of Ambrose. And at first, he is going out of professional curiosity. But soon he's going to find that he's going as a seeker. And it's through the preaching of Ambrose that Augustine is not, he's not going to convert yet, but he's going to be put into a state of just total inner turmoil because he's hearing truth and he's recognizing truth, but he's still battling his, his lusts and his fleshly desires. And uh, so, it, you know, when you read Confessions, he, and I, it's kind of, I think he says it kind of jokingly because he's condemning his lifestyle, but he says that at, the, at that time, Augustine's prayer to God was, give me chastity and continence, but not yet. So, uh, I think that's funny. But, um, so, ultimately, though, he is going to be totally unable to find peace. And in the midst of this internal struggle, he's going to just run out of the house where all these people were kind of chattering at him. He's going to go into the garden. And there in the garden... And, and he recounts this in Confessions. He hears, the way he describes it is he says that he, he hears the voice of a child that later in life he believed was the Holy Spirit speaking to him. But there was no child in the garden, but he hears the voice of a child and the voice says to take it up and read it. And so he goes and finds the first Bible he can locate and he just opened it up and the and he looks down on it, and the verse that he finds is Romans 13, 3 through 14, and it says, and keep in mind, this is a man who is struggling with, with his lusts. He says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires." And with that, he just lets it all go. And he goes and seeks out Ambrose, and Ambrose baptizes him. And Augustine is now totally devoted to Christ for the rest of his life. And so that's, that's how he gets to where he's at. But now he does have a struggle with, well, how do I live as a Christian? How do I... It's not so much the, the desires, but how do I, what do I do with myself now? What, if I'm going to serve God, I'm going to serve him with the whole of my being, what do I do? Well, 
he decides to go back to Africa. And while he's traveling south through Italy, both his son and his mother are both going to die. And, oh, and when he was baptized, his son was also baptized as well. So Ambrose is going to baptize Augustine and Adiodatus. And, you know, Augustine believed that both his mother and his son, you know, had completed the roles that they had in life, which was getting Augustine to where God wanted him to be, and then he called them home. And so now he goes back to, to Africa by himself. And he gets to his family's estate, and he sells off everything, except for the house, which he converts into a center of biblical study, in effect. And he invites people to come in and live with him there and devote themselves to the study of the scriptures. And that's, that's what, Const what Augustine essentially does for the rest of his life. He was about 41 when he became a Christian, and he's going to live for another 44 years as a believer. And ultimately, after he's been ensconced in this study for several years, he will be made the leader of the church in the town that his house was outside of, which in Latin was called Hippo Regius. So you usually see him referred to as Augustine of Hippo. And so, and so he's going to become a leader in the church, like his local church, but through his writings and his teachings, he is going to become the leader of the Western church. When Ambrose passes... Augustine is going to pick up the mantle and take Ambrose's fight even further. And, his, and so now it's when his influence really becomes to bear, comes to bear, because he's going to write a storm for the rest of his life. And so it's through his writings that he is going to send out into the Roman Empire what's left of it and begin to influence the church. And he's going to engage in several theological struggles with heretics, as we'll talk about in a minute, that, uh, you know, he will keep the church on a sound footing theologically moving forward. So let's talk about that. Um, <clears throat> any questions about the life of Augustine before we delve more into what his teachings are? No questions? Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, he was 19 when he was born, 41 when he converted, when Constantine, when Augustine converted, I'm sorry. Um, so, you know, he's in his early 20s when he, when he died, but he was, he was loyal to his father, and he didn't seem to have all the struggles that his father had. Uh, in terms of lusts and things like that. I mean, by the time Adiodatus died, you know, uh, Augustine had had a son for, you know, four or five years by that age. So, but he was, he was present with his father through this whole struggle, and they were baptized together, and then he died, I mean, a few months later. So, along with Monica as well. So, but... You know, through the rest of his life, Con 
Augustine uh, is still just absolutely devoted to his mother and I think repenting of the way he treated her when she was alive. But he rejoiced that she lived long enough to see her son repent and, you know, the fulfillment of all her prayers that she had faithfully prayed for for four decades. You know, she had faithfully been praying for her son and he fought tooth, tongue, and toenail but in the end, she lived to see the answer of her prayers. So, I mean, she's kind of like, you know, Zechariah or Anna in the, in the temple, you know. It's just like been praying, 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 and at the end of her life, there is the fulfillment of the prayer. So, <clears throat> um, okay, so for Augustine, the place to start, I think, when talking about him in his teachings, is that he absolutely was devoted to the scriptures. So that was the foundation of whatever he taught, it only came from the scriptures. And so he, he was deeply concerned with, with the primacy of the word of God and that no other teaching supplant that in importance and, and so he, he was concerned with its truth, he was concerned with its authority, and he was concerned with its sufficiency. And when I say concerned, I'm not saying he had doubts. I'm saying those were his first concerns that he wanted to make sure were established before all other things. So, um, so I have a number of quotes in here regarding these things. And, and these are just kind of thrown out there, but when you read his works, it's filled with this. I mean, it permeates everything. But this is just a flavoring to give you an idea of the way he thinks. So regarding the truth of Scripture, he says, I have learned to yield this respect and honor only to the canonical books of Scripture of these alone do I most firmly believe that the authors were completely free from error. Does it sound like he would fit into our church? Absolutely. Uh, he, he goes further, he says, The scriptures are holy, and they are truthful, and they are blameless. And it seems to me that the most disastrous consequences must follow upon our believing that anything false is found in the sacred books. So, I mean, he is, <clears throat> he would, uh, you know, the, the doctrine uh, of inerrancy is in many ways the, the defining theological doctrine of evangelicalism. So, I mean, the Catholics don't hold to the same doctrine of inerrancy, the, the Orthodox don't, they're not even concerned with it. So, it, it's something that's uniquely... Uh, evangelical, not unique, like we're the only ones that have, you know, teased it out of the Bible, but the questions we are concerned with are concerned with inerrancy. And <clears throat> that goes back to, I mean, that is reflected in Luther's sola scriptura. You know, scripture alone is sufficient and authoritative. You know, and and We'll talk about that in a bit, where Luther is echoing, really, he's echoing Augustine. But Augustine himself is, was concerned with the inerrancy of Scripture. 
So he, he was a powerful advocate for its inerrancy. Uh, he was also deeply uh, concerned or a, a very uh, vehement proponent of its authority. Now, in this following quote, it says, the mediator, you will see that, uh, you know, later on, he, he tends to, and we'll talk about this right at the end of class, he, he was a, a, a completely devoted Trinitarian. Um, so he was absolutely, uh, you know, embraced the doctrine of the Trinity, that God exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, three distinct persons. And in so doing, he refers to often to the Father, Son, and Spirit as the initiator. That's the Father. The Son is the mediator, and the Spirit is the unifier. So when you read Augustine, a lot of the times you'll see him refer to the initiator or the mediator. So in this following quote, what does he say? He says, the mediator. So you know he's talking about Christ. He says, the mediator, having spoken what he judged sufficient, first by the prophets, then by his own lips, that's Christ, the incarnation, and afterwards by the apostles, has besides produced the scripture which we which is called canonical, which has paramount authority, and to which we yield assent in all matters of which we ought not to be ignorant, and yet cannot ourselves know. He says further, therefore, everything written in Scripture must be believed absolutely. Would he fit into our church? Yes. Um, not only... Is the Bible authoritative in general, but it's authoritative over all other sources of authority. Now, what, what did Luther mean when he says sola scriptura? Well, he says scripture alone is our authority. Our church's authority is not Brandon. Our church's authority is not the Southern Baptist Convention. Our church's authority is not the National Association of Evangelical Churches. Our authority is the Word of God. Okay? In the Orthodox Church, in the Greek Church, they have two sources of authority. And they, one is neither over the other. They, are, they run parallel to each other. One is Scripture, so we can agree with them on that. And the other equally valuable, equally authoritative authority is tradition. So the writings of the church fathers are authoritative in the Orthodox Church. In the Catholic Church, different even further. They have what's called a magisterium. The magisterium is headed by the Pope, and below him are the, the College of Cardinals. And it is only through them that both tradition and Scripture can be interpreted. So they are the authority. Remember what I said about the church straying away from Augustine? This is one of the areas where they're straying away from Augustine. Augustine himself believed and asserted that all authority 
is subordinate to the authority of Scripture. So he says, in the innumerable books that have been written since the close of the canon, we may find sometimes the same truth as in the Scripture, but there is not the same authority. Scripture has a sacredness that is peculiar to itself. So he's saying, in the writings of Irenaeus, in the writings of Tertullian, in the writings of Gregory of Nazianzus, there is much truth to be found. But is it authoritative? No. It's instructive, and it's helpful, and it's edifying, but it's not authoritative. Only the Bible is authoritative. So that's, that's where Augustine comes down on the issue. So once again, you see the church in the West is straying from Augustine. And you can also see how the Reformers are going to look back to him and say, that, that's what we got to get back to. Another form of authority, though, is not the writings of the fathers, but the councils and the creeds, which are very important. I mean, the Nicene Creed was an absolutely essential step for the church in articulating what it believed and in articulating what is truly revealed in the scriptures, especially in the face of heresy that's teaching something counter to it. But as important as the creed is, and it is important, and it's something we should be familiar with, is it authoritative? Not like scripture. It's important and it has some authority we have all, the church through the ages has assented to its truth. And in that, you know, through the ascent of the saints through the centuries, there's, there's some, you know, preeminence or preeminent authority is put in it, but not the same spiritual authority as Scripture. And to that, Augustine says, he says this when he's debating an Arian, an Arian heretic. He says, I must not press the authority of Nicaea against you, nor you that of Ariminum, which was a council of Arian bishops, against me. I do not acknowledge the one as you do not the other, but let us come to ground that is common to both, the testimony of the Holy Scriptures. That, so just as easily as you can have a council that articulates truth, so can there be a council that articulates false truth. And the councils are important, and the creeds are important. But ultimately, the only place where you're going to find truth, ultimate truth, and authoritative truth is in the Scriptures. So everything for Augustine is coming back to that authority. And lastly, he's concerned with the sufficiency <clears throat> So that's all you need. You don't need something besides what's in the Scripture to point you to Christ or anything like that. What, what's Paul saying in Galatians? I mean, he's saying the same, same thing. So Augustine says, What more shall I teach you than what, was read, than what we read in the apostles? And when he says the apostles, he means the New Testament. For Holy Scripture fixes the rule of our doctrine lest we be wiser than we ought. Sounds like Adam and Eve at the tree. Therefore, let it not be for me to teach you any other thing except to expound to you the words 
of the teacher, or the divine teacher, and to treat them as the Lord will have given them to me. So he's saying, if, if I am seen as an authority, let the authority that I'm seen as being as one who is really just communicating the scriptures to you. So, he adds to that, for among the things that are plainly laid down in scripture are to be found all matters that concern faith and the manner of life. Does that sound like you would fit into our church? Yeah. So, okay. So that's Augustine on the authority of Scripture. And he is, I don't think he's, he's not adding something new. He's really doubling down on what had been in the church all along. You know, all the other leaders that we've talked about all were proponents of this the truthfulness, the authority, and sufficiency of Scripture. Athanasius, Basil the Great, they were all teaching the same thing, and they're all teaching out of the Scriptures. Augustine is just crystallizing that as, you know, the only principle to follow. So he's, he's just articulating it with vehemence that had not been articulated before. Any questions? Okay. This is where I have to start picking more judiciously what I talk about. Um, okay. So, I'll just, this next section, section three, I'm just going to touch over really briefly because it's section four that I really want to dive into. Um, two issues that he's going to confront when he first gets back to North Africa. One is Manichaeism, the, the religion that he had once himself been a part of. And he is going to actually have a lot of personal guilt. In, I mean, just struggle with that in his own heart because he led several people to Manichaeism. And now as a Christian, he is lamenting, in effect, damning them you know, and steering them away from Christ. And so he's going to write a lot and grapple theologically with a lot of the issues that Manichaeism prevent, pre, presents. Uh, and ultimately, and, and we'll come into this more in a minute when we talk about Pelagianism, but it's going to shape his understanding of the human will. We'll get to that. Uh, the other issue is a group called the Donatists, and they had been around since Diocletian's great persecutions. And the Donatists, what they initially were, were Christians that survived the persecutions. And then after the persecutions were ended, they said, no Christian that lapsed during the persecutions can be admitted back into the church. In fact, they, I mean, they really, they lacked grace. But they were very vehement in that. And they were a, a group located in North Africa. And Constantine, there, I did use Constantine. I did mean him this time, not Augustine. Um, Constantine did have to deal with the Donatists for a while, but they're not going to go away for hundreds of years. And after that first generation of survivors from the great persecutions, what it's going to become is they are going to say, no one baptized by a non-Donatist church leader 
is part of the true church. So it doesn't matter how fervent you seek Christ, if you were baptized by the wrong guy, you're out of luck. And they're going to just get increasingly more sectarian and increasingly more militant. And ultimately, they're going to wage a guerrilla war against the government, the Roman government in North Africa. And it's in response to this with Augustine trying to reconcile how do we deal with these guys and they need to be dealt with. How do we deal with them as Christians? And it's through the grappling of that that he is going to develop what we call the just war theory, which is something that people still make use of to this day. And he articulates three principles of, you know, that, of, that must be followed in order to make war just. And you can read them in the notes. I don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time on them right now because I don't have a lot of time. Um, and what I really want to talk about is Pelagianism. So this, this was the theological battle that, con, that Augustine is primarily remembered for. And it, it was a huge uh, issue in the West. Now this is again a, one of those markers that distinguishes the East from the West. In the West, they never had Arianism. Uh, you know, it, didn't, it, it comes in when the barbarians invade and uh, impose Arianism by the sword. But during Augustine's time, it's not really an issue um, yet. In the East, you know, the eternal nature of the sun, that's really a philosophical question that Christians in the East are grappling with. In the West, the question is, how do I live? What are the practical implications of life as a Christian? And that's going to bring about Pelagianism. And Pelagius was a monk from Britain who came down to Rome and started teaching a new doctrine. And essentially what he's going to teach is that humanity is born without sin. That we're all born with the capacity to be just as good or just as evil as, we, as our will desires to be. And and we are free to choose. And ultimately what Pelagian leads to is a non-Christ's necessary and works-centered way of life. If, we're, if we have the capacity to be as good as we want to be, then theoretically we could save ourselves. And Christ is not necessary. And this, this, the crucifixion is not necessary. And Augustine is going to hear this and say, no way. And he, his dealings with the Manichees are going to really, the, the, the philosophical equipment, the, the language that he had to develop in order to deal with them, is now, he, he's refined that in dealing with the Manichees, and so now he's going to bring that to bear on uh, on Pelagius, in part because the Manichees, they're arguing kind of the opposite end of the spectrum, saying that, well, everything's corrupt, and uh, there's no, you know, you're predestined to just, you know, be evil, in effect. And so, and Augustine was saying, no, we have 
the, the capacity to, to resist that, to, to the resist the being of evil. However, he, so he's saying we have a will that is not purely governed by uh, matter. You know, there, are, there is a spiritual component to our will that frees us to be able to choose different things. However, Augustine is going to, uh, he does embrace the doctrine of original sin and that we are all born sinners and that, but in, and that we have a free will as a sinner, but our will is free only to make choices that are sinful choices. And it's only through Christ that we are, our will is freed in this life than to choose righteousness or sinfulness. So, you know, sin is still present in the world, even as a believer, and Augustine recognizes that. But he's saying once, once you have faith in Christ, you can pursue righteousness. And that only then, when we are in the presence of God, we will still have a free will, but then all our decisions will be you know, all our choices will be choices of righteousness, in effect. So he is, he is saying, you know, our, our will, we're born with original sin, our will is hopelessly tainted by that, and we can only choose sinful things. But the avenue out of that is what? Grace. God's grace on us, by drawing us to him, allows us then to, our will is then free to choose right and wrong. But it's only through the grace of God that we are able to do that. So he is going to become, as they say, the, the doctor of grace. Doctor being, meaning teacher. Uh, so he, he is going to be the great proponent of grace. Who else is going to do that? And the reformers. They're the ones that put us on the path that we're on, and they're going to be looking back to Augustine. In fact, Luther, you know, his great magnum opus is a book entitled The Bondage of the Will. And he is looking to Augustine saying, please, give me more. Because, I mean, what Luther is writing about in response to the corruption of the church is the same thing that Augustine is writing about before the corruption of the church. They're saying the same things. You need the grace of God, in order to be saved. It is only through his grace, only through the work of Christ, that you can be saved. So, he says, "Geez, <clears throat> uh, I'll let you guys read a lot of these quotes. Um, uh, let's see, let's... Let's move on to the last page. Uh, you can read the, the quotes there on the third page on your own. Um, well, let me read one, just for fun. Back on the third page, right in the middle, he says, But what about the person who does no work? Think here of some godless sinner who has no good work to show. What of him or her? What if such a person comes to believe in God who justifies the impious? 
When someone believes in him who justifies the impious, that faith is reckoned as justice to the believer. As David too declares, that person blessed from God, whom God has accepted and endowed with righteousness, independently of any righteous actions. What righteousness is this? The righteousness of faith, preceded by no good works, but with good works as its consequence. The reason I singled that one out is because right there you, you see Augustine reconciling that tension that exists between Paul and James. So, you know, Luther, who loved Augustine, really didn't like the book of James. In fact, he wanted to staple his Bible shut on that book. You know, he just didn't want to open it. You know, faith without works is dead. And, and Luther had a real, real hard time with that. But, you know, we see now that, you know, the, 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 the pursuit of faith, the abiding in Christ, properly yields works. If your faith is not yielding fruit, and that's a good word we should use for it instead of works, but if your faith is not yielding fruit, what kind of faith is that? So it's not the fruit that is saving you, but it's the abiding in Christ that yields the fruit that saves you through the grace of God. And Augustine sees that. Luther had a hard time grappling with that, but Augustine got it. He understands that. So let's go to the last page. And I will confess, I really envisioned more notes on these things, so these are just very, 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 very rough sketches. But there's three, <clears throat> three books. I mean, Augustine wrote a lot. But there's three books that really demand... Uh, being in a Christian library. I mean, honestly, all his stuff does. But the three are Confessions, The City of God, and then On the Trinity. So I want to just mention, I want to talk briefly about each of those for a couple minutes each before I wrap it up. Um, so I've, I've already mentioned Confessions as far as what it is and, and so on. And I love the way he begins, when he, when he first starts at the very beginning of the book, he says, referring to God, he says, you stir man to take pleasure in praising you, because you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. And he's, he's saying that to set up the story of his own restlessness, and his, his restless journey from pagan torment to rest in faith in Christ. But in so doing, in, 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 in laying out the course of his own life, he, what he ends up doing is laying out or articulating a biblical anthropology, a biblical doctrine of humanity. And he is a keen, keen observer of the human condition. And so Confessions is just filled with profound insights into human nature and the nature of our relationship to God. So the contrast to that, though, is the city of God, which I'll just, you know, the summary of it is 
through the course of that book, he lays out a profound biblical theology of ecclesiology, which is of the church, and how those anthropoi of the confessions, the, the man, the man, the humanity of the, the confessions individually operates corporately as a group. And so what confessions is about, or the city of God is about, is, uh, so Augustine dies in the year 430. So, but in the year 410, what happened? We talked about it last Sunday. The Goths sack Rome, the eternal city. It had been literally 800 years since a foreign army had entered into Rome. So how many generations is that, that that, re- that city remained inviolate? And now it has succumbed to the depredations of a barbarian horde. And that was an earth-shattering event psychologically. I mean, that would be like, uh, you know, a foreign army marching, marching into Washington, D.C. Uh, you know, that would shake us up a little bit. Um, and I'm not talking about some rioters in the Capitol. I'm talking about an army of thousands burning the city, tearing down all the monuments, you know, that kind of a thing, taking all the treasures away and hauling them off out of the city. That's what I'm talking about. And Washington, D.C. has not been there for 800 years. Um, And so the pagans that were in the empire turned on the Christians and said, it's because of you guys that this has happened. That because you have turned away from the old gods that the city has fallen. And so Augustine was moved to write a defense of the church in the face of this attack. And in so doing, he lays out a roadmap for how the church should be functioning in a world where political chaos is consuming institution after institution after institution. And what is the life of the believer in the midst of a world consumed by political chaos? And so, and, and there is a reason why this book has lasted and stood the test of time as it has, because I, I promise you, the, the wisdom that Augustine expounds in this book is very relevant to us today. So I would encourage everybody to read both Confessions and the City of God. They're also not short. Um, <clears throat> uh, so, um, and lastly... I don't have time to talk about it now, uh, but his book on the Trinity, obviously I didn't have time to even write much notes about it, Uh, but it's also a very good uh, practical uh, theological delving into the doctrine of the Trinity, and one that is, is a little more pragmatic than the ones that you see in the East, which are a little more philosophically oriented. So all three of those are are kind of his masterworks. Augustine, as I said, he dies, and I'll end with this, he dies in the year 430. And when he dies, there's a German tribe called the Vandals. And they'd been up in Germany. They'd crossed the Rhine River. They'd crossed Gaul, what is now France. They crossed the Pyrenees. They crossed through Spain. They crossed the Straits of Gibraltar. And they marched across North Africa. 
and they conquered Roman North Africa. And when Augustine dies, the Vandals were literally besieging his city. So he was inside the city walls as a very old man, and he dies as the Roman world was literally falling apart around him. And with him, in many, many ways, dies the old church, the ancient church, and after him comes the medieval church. So it really is, both politically and theologically, a, a massive, uh, epic-shifting time. And so from, you know, from that point on, the church is going to be in a totally different political environment, a different cultural environment, and it's going to be on a totally different trajectory, both east and west. And that's where we'll be going from here in the next few classes, is we'll, we'll be discussing how, how things have changed and the new issues that the church is confronted with, and, and still charting out the road how we got from there to here. So, any questions? Yes. Well, here's the thing. Um, yes, but probably not as much as you want. Um, I had initially been planning on just running with this for a while. But some of you know, and some of you may not know, my wife is, and I are opening an animal hospital. And uh, we're hoping to open in February. And so my time teaching may be curtailed. So I'm going to be up here for a few more weeks, but I'm going to take a break as we open the hospital. And then after a while, I may be able to get back to it. So I'm not exactly sure, but I know for the next few weeks, I at least will be talking about Middle Ages stuff. It just may not be as much or as long as you would like. I, I, will, I, will, uh, I will plot a course through that, that that I think will at least give some insight. Yes. Yep. So... Any other questions? Yes. <laughs> um, we are going to be in Wairika uh, for a couple of years, but we're, we are working on moving south. I mean, it was really lack of facility down here that, that sent us that way, but God has provided many, many good things for us up there, and so it really has been a blessing. But we do hope to be back in South County in the relatively near future. But for now, we're uh, 106 Oberlin, which is right where Oberlin hits I-5, is where we'll be. So if you have a sick animal, go see that lady. <laughs> That's my free advertising for the morning. Um, okay, let, let's close in prayer. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for giving us so much to think about, for, for lives well-lived, for lives lived in turmoil, in sin, but turning to you in Christ and providing so many blessings therein. So we thank you for this chance to study them. I pray that we will ultimately, through whatever we study, 
in this and in other classes that we will be pointed more towards you to love you more, to rely on you more, and, and to know you better. So we thank you for this, this time and for this opportunity and for everyone in here that, that thirsts for you. We say all of this, we say thank you, and we ask your blessing upon it. In your name we pray. Amen.